Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the SCANA studio today is Doug Bostic, who is the executive director of the South Carolina Battleground Preservation Trust. And we're going to talk about that organization, but also very specifically about Fairlawn Plantation, which belonged to the Colleton family, and a very rare Revolutionary War fortification. So, Doug, welcome to the Journal. Walter, thank you for having me. Delighted to be with you. Well, first of all, let's talk a little bit about Doug Bostick. As we say down here, who are you folks? Where'd you come from? How'd you get into doing what you're doing? Well, I'm a native South Carolinian mm-hmm. um, down in Charleston. You know, we're supposed to put great stock in how many generations. I don't know that that's ever gotten me anything, but uh, our ancestors in Charleston trace back to George Flagg, mm-hmm. Secretary of the Sons of Liberty, mm-hmm. uh, during the Revolutionary War period. And we've been in everywhere from uh, all and to Charleston to James Island since. Mm-hmm. I've always been interested in history, uh, taken down that dusty old road by my grandfather, who, uh, you know, we've all have images of grandfathers that bored us to tears with tales when we were young. And by the time you hit your young adult life, you wish you memorized everything, every single thing they talked about. Uh, and so he's the one that really got me hooked in history. And I've been involved in history one way or another ever since. Let our listeners know exactly what the Battleground Preservation Trust is. Yeah, the the Battleground Trust is essentially a land trust. We're no different than many other land trusts that exist, like Low Country Open Land Trust or Lord Berkeley Conservation Trust. But our interest, our mission, is extremely narrow. We only focus on military historic sites in South Carolina. So it could be Revolutionary War, Civil War. Uh, we're now currently working with a Yemassee War site. Mm-hmm. Um, so it covers the broad spectrum. But our job is to preserve and protect those sites, either by obtaining conservation easements if possible, and sometimes by direct ownership. We own about half of the sites that we oh. protect. Wow. So how large is your staff? <laughs> My staff is uh, only three of us. Okay. It's a very small group. Uh, I have a young man who's both an archaeologist and our uh, GIS technician, Mm -hmm. and then I have another archaeology technician that works with us. How many sites do you now have under your aegis? Let's use that word. Some of them you actually own and some you have an easement on. 28 total sites. 28 total sites. And let's just talk a minute about Fairlawn and where, where it came from. Yes, it belonged to the Colleton family. And I'll just let you take it from there and give, a, give our folks a little bit of history about this place. Because I think the history pre-fortification is very interesting as well. Oh, I would certainly agree. I, I think it's one of the most fascinating sites we've had the opportunity to work with. On this particular project, we're partnering with the Lord Berkeley Conservation Trust, which is headquartered in Monk's Corner. We thought that that served the project in the best way to have a local land trust partner with us. Our expertise is in military historic sites. Their expertise is conserving uh, land along the Cooper River. And so Fairlawn Barony is an amazing place. It was originally 12,000 acres on the western branch of the Cooper River. Uh, That land was granted to Sir John Colleton, Uh, He's the direct descendant of the Lord Proprietor, Sir John Colleton. And the Colletons, as far as I know, Walter, and maybe you could help us with this, but I believe they're the only family of a Lord Proprietor to actually live in the state. Of the original Lord Proprietor, because there were some secondary folks who who came in, but of the original eight, yes, the Colletons were the only ones. First, Sir Peter Colleton coming in, and then eventually Sir John and Lady Jane uh, coming in. So yes, you're correct. Of the original eight, the Collitons were the only family to actually settle in South Carolina. So the, the Fairlawn Barony uh, included property that uh, we might know in more recent history as Stony Landing, Old House Plantation, Gippy Plantation, Lewisfield Plantation, most of Monk's Corner, Panopolis. They're all in the footprint of the original barony. And so the home was built at the barony in 1726. And wasn't it called Colleton Castle? It was called Colleton Castle. And there's a, an account 
that survives in a diary today that described it as the most extensive brick mansion complex in South Carolina in that period. Mm-hmm. So it was a massive, grand place, uh, certainly the home of uh, Sir John Colleton. We've done, we're fortunate that we have the uh, options on two pieces of this property. Uh, One is the house site of Colleton Castle itself. And uh, the house, of course, was burned by the British at the end of the Revolutionary War before they evacuated South Carolina. But the ruins of the house are still there. We've done some preliminary archaeology on the site. We'll probably save that story for another time, but uh, suffice it to say that uh, the early finds just clearly indicate how extremely wealthy this family was. So we're excited about the prospects of continuing that. That's about an eight-acre site um, right outside of Monk's Corner. And then nearby that, the other site, uh, which was built on the barony, is Fort Farallon itself, a British Earthworks redoubt. And, uh, All right, describe what you mean by a redoubt. Yeah, a, a redoubt is, uh, in this case, an earthworks fortification. It's a square fort okay. uh, built of earth. Um, I still run into, well, frequently run into people that don't understand what an earthwork is. <laughs> uh, but a fortification built of dirt can be a very effective defensive position. Since we're now in the centennial of World War One, guess what they were still doing in World War One? Yeah, amazingly enough, uh, it's, it's interesting you raise that point. Uh, we've we've talked with the people at the uh, West Point Museum for several years now. Both of us would love to find an Earthworks powder magazine intact to study it. Mm-hmm. We own several. We have a concern that. Once we open this up, what's inside, they're built of big timbers, would deteriorate so rapidly it would perhaps not be safe to even enter it. But as, as we've studied this with the West Point Museum, you're exactly right. Uh, the technology for earthworks continued on through World War I. So sometimes the best places to study this engineering technology is on the battlefields of Europe. Mm-hmm. All right. And... It was square. Did it have any bastions? Or it, uh, it it was a square readout. Interestingly enough, the four points, the four corners, are directly on the major compass points. So the corners are exactly true north, south, east, and west. In the preliminary research that we've done on the site, and we're just on the front end of all this, the southern corner has a gun platform about 12 feet square. Okay. We believe, we don't know the armament yet, um, and there's been no surviving period description that leads us to that, but we believe that size of an earthen gun platform would probably support a six-pounder gun. Mm-hmm. The other corners are much smaller, only six feet square, and so would have been very difficult to... Uh, fire and then muzzle load a six pounder, uh, never mind the recoil. And so we believe those positions were probably stocked with swivel guns, mm-hmm. which uh, were used in great number by the British during the Revolutionary War in South Carolina. All right, now this, this, the south corner, in terms of terrain, is that pointing to the river? Yeah, the, the south corner points directly to where we believe the boat landing was, okay, and that there was a fortified blockhouse at the boat landing. This would have been the main boat landing for any travel of troops or supplies coming out of Charlestown, mm-hmm. would have landed at this spot on the Cooper River. The Cooper River in this section has been altered uh, through the 20th century with the um, canal and, and uh, uh, everything prepared for the Santee Cooper project. So we're currently studying old maps, trying to locate the exact position, but believing the fact that these military engineers didn't do these things by accident, they're very intentionally designed. If you draw a straight line off of that southern corner, it takes you straight to a spot on the Cooper River where we believe currently uh, the landing did exist. Yeah. Well, that, that's why I asked, because it, made, it would make sense that the most sensitive point 
would have the heaviest armament. Exactly right. And the other three points, which would protect from a, a land, somebody coming from land, a swivel gun, which they used on ships as, as well. Right. But uh, today we think of somebody spraying with a machine gun. It's not quite like that, but it was a light gun that could maneuver. Sure. And could had, spin, uh, oftentimes was set up on a post, mm-hmm. um, and, and maybe analogous to a machine gun or a really nasty shotgun. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't have a big range, but was tremendously effective for a, an infantry attack. Yes. Now, you, ha- you have gotten an easement on both of those, or you've taken pieces where the house was and where the redoubt is? No, we're buying both sites. Okay. Um, we're using grants to purchase the two sites. And it's going to be a marvelous opportunity to preserve something that's exceedingly rare, uh, arguably in the entire nation, certainly within South Carolina. Well, I'm delighted to hear that you're working with the folks at the West Point Museum. I've been there. I know some of them. It's just it's an incredible operation. And, of course, the Revolutionary War sites that they deal with are all in the north, and they're sturdier than earth right. <laughs> redoubts built in the south. And, you know, this would be the second significant project in the last few years where South Carolina has partnered with a national institution because the Smithsonian partnered with the folks on Edisto Island in terms of preserving slave cabins that are now going to be a part of the new African-American museum. Yes. So we've got incredible historical treasures here in the state that have survived into the 21st century. Yeah, I I think that um, South Carolina is one of those places where you can really take a walk back through time and look at assets that still survive here, fortunately. And and I think South Carolina within the nation has developed a reputation for a dedication to preservation, not just of our stories and our culture, but of these amazing historic sites. And Fort Fairlawn, we believe in time, once the public has an opportunity to see it, this will rank up there with the top of them. Well, I know it's near the old uh, Santee Canal, so there's already a public site near it. Uh, But you envision at some point, after you do archaeological work and and making it available so folks can tour the site. Yeah, the the ultimate plan for this, um, and I think it's going to be a very exceptional plan that will serve the site well. As I mentioned, we're partnering with the Lord Berkeley Conservation Trust. Once we um, get the site completely secured, do the preliminary research, this site, uh, the 80 acres that we're buying with the fort itself, butts to the Santee Canal Park. Mm -hmm. And Santee Cooper has agreed to manage the site and actually make it a part of the canal park. Oh, wonderful. So that, only give, that not only gives us ongoing management, but security um, and people that have a proven track record of maintaining a park that is uh, exceedingly interesting. And I think this will certainly enhance the canal park. And for us, it's a marvelous opportunity to make this site available to the public through that uh, organization. You are in the process of constructing uh, a website which will have visual images of the redoubt and the archaeological site as well, or just really the redoubt? It'll unfold over time, but uh, the early archaeology studies will be reported there. Uh, We'll have images of the British redoubt, uh, Fort Fairlawn. We're also uh, preparing to conduct a terrestrial LIDAR survey of the site. And for listeners that maybe are not familiar with that technology, it's the use of infrared light that from the survey, we can build a 3D model of what survives today. And once we model that, along with the period information we have from the Revolutionary War, then we can model what the site looked like during the time of the war itself. Okay. And so all that will be available to the public. Well, that's terrific. If I were to go to the site with you tomorrow, I'm roughly six feet, and so are you. If we're standing there in the redoubt, we can stand in the square, is that correct? Yes. Okay. How tall? The, the walls um, extend up to two meters tall. A little over six feet. A little over six feet in height. And let me say, too, Uh, because we work with lots of Civil War earthwork sites. This Revolutionary War site rivals any Civil War site I've seen in the state in terms of its excellent condition. Mm -hmm. 
large part of that is due to the fact that there's a high clay content mm-hmm. in the soil amongst corner. So the wind and rain erosion on the earthworks has been fairly minimal. Uh, it has eroded some, and some of the sharp corners have sloped off and rounded out over time, as would be expected. But in terms of its overall condition, the sally port entering the redoubt exists. Wow. Okay. The walls, the parapet exists. Um, around the inside of the parapet is a earthen standing platform where soldiers would have stood to fire their rifles over the wall. That all is still there intact. Uh, I earlier mentioned the four gun platforms are intact. And so it, it's just an, an exceptional condition. Well, it, it is. And I don't want to say anything negative about my our good friends over at Camden where they do have earthworks. They have reconstructed from the plans and the, and the diaries, and they have faithfully reconstructed them. This is an original. This is not a reconstruction. Yeah, Camden has done a marvelous job, uh, not only in reconstructing their earthworks, but in the interpretation they do. But as the saying goes, this is the real McCoy. Uh, What you have the opportunity to stand within is the exact fortification that Bannister Tarleton stood in, Mm -hmm. that Lord Cornwallis stood in, that Francis Marion and Captain Wade Hampton attacked. Uh, It's the real deal. And it's going to be a rare opportunity to see that within not just South Carolina, but in the nation. Well, you know, I can hear some listeners now. Well, an earthwork fort, how safe would that have been? Well, it was that was just not the entire fortification. They had right. the abatis, the, the sharp stakes to yep. keep infantry people from running up the earth. earth. Yeah, this, uh, this fortification uh, did have an abatis that completely surrounded the fort. In addition to Fort Fairlawn, the blockhouse at the boat landing was fortified by troops. Colleton Castle itself was fortified by British troops with swivel guns in the windows and earthworks at the house and abatis around the house itself. And then they also fortified Biggin Church. So it was a cluster of fortifications created by the British even before Charlestown fell in 1780. Um, A lot of people don't know the history, but the British ended up in Berkeley County before Charlestown fell, and and the reason they went there was they were looking for horses. Mm -hmm. They had lost most of the horses for both the Quartermaster Corps and their cavalry from the trip from New York. And Berkeley County raised some of the best horses in the entire state in that era. And so they were there looking for horses and looking to cut off uh, Benjamin Lincoln's uh, route of retreat from Charlestown, which they successfully did. And, of course, the Collitons were noted for their horse stock. Yes, they were. And and you mentioned Bannister Tarleton. Everybody associates him, of course, with the wax saws and, you know, cow pens and what have you. But he demonstrated his... Uh, shall we say, ruthlessness uh, in a battle very near here before the fall of Charlestown. Sure. The, um, the Battle of Monk's Corner was uh, one of his first marks. Um, the couple of public lectures I've done about uh, the early history of Berkeley County and the Revolutionary War, I always suggest to the audience that when they hear the name Bannister Tarleton, it should be accompanied by the audience hissing, uh, <laughs> which we've had great fun with. But um, uh, that attack on Monk's Corner prior to the fall of Charleston, he recovered several hundred horses, mm-hmm. routed the uh, militia under General Huge, and and that was when they successfully cut off Lincoln's route of retreat. Well, it's, it's interesting, and I, and I know you know this, but our listeners might find it interesting, is that because of his conduct at the Battle of Monk's Corner, uh, going beyond just defeating the enemy uh, with the way he treated prisoners. Major Ferguson, who, of course, would lead British forces at, at uh, King's Mountain, wanted to file military charges against Bannister Tarleton and his men, and Cornwallis and Sir Henry Clinton didn't go along with that. Right. Yeah, their conduct was atrocious. And was at this time before the fall of Charleston when they went to Colleton Castle... And I think Lady Jane herself answered the door, or servants did. Right. And 
the accounts say that there were a number of loyalist ladies who were refugeeing at Colleton Castle for safety, but the fact that they were loyalist didn't seem to make any difference. They were, what's the euphemism? They were roughed up. They were mistreated. There's never been any exact statement as to what that is. No, it's always eloquently said. Um, one account that I read said that... Um, the women at Colleton Castle suffered mistreatments by the troops, um, which would be a way too kind description on what likely occurred there. Um, but the fact that they were loyalists did not seem to sway the troops at all. Uh, well, see, that's, that should have given Cornwallis an indication of once you let Tarleton loose, you're certainly not going to win the hearts and minds of the of the locals. And Somewhere I remember that Lady Jane Colleton herself received a, she was slashed on the arm with a saber. I believe that she was wounded, yes. Um, and, you know, that's just, um, if, if you believe Bannister Tarleton's boasting, according to his contemporaries, once he got back to England, uh, mistreatment is a, just a euphemism for rape. Yes, yeah, I believe that's accurate. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about the Collitons for a minute, because they are a fascinating family. And first of all, we keep calling him Sir John, which everybody understands, I hope, that he was not just a knight. He was a baronet. He was actually a member of the English nobility, an inherited title. And Lady Jane was, I believe, his second wife. At the time the British arrive, um, she essentially owns... Uh, uh, Sir John dies in 1777, and Lady Jane is left to preside over Fairlawn Barony. So anyway, um, we've, we've got a, a true English aristocratic family here on the Cooper River in South Carolina, and the revolution has descended. They are loyalists. Right. They are loyal to the king. Right. And the fact that those ladies are gathered there when the British get there is that would have been for protection because the patriots, as we call them, our side, or the rebels as the British called the revolutionaries, uh, were not very fond and kind to people who were loyalists. Well, you know, that's one of the elements of the Revolutionary War in South Carolina that perhaps a lot of listeners um, may not be aware of. But uh, if you want to call something a civil war, the Revolutionary War in South Carolina was truly a civil war. No question. Neighbor to neighbor, house to house, brother against brother. Um, all within the same community, and the feelings were intense. Uh, and the manner in which everybody treated everybody, uh, it certainly was not fought as a gentleman's war within the state. And, of course, after the British occupied South Carolina, it got worse. Much worse. Okay, so it's the spring of 1780. The British have, have landed. They've moved into this area above Charleston and what's now Berkeley County, Monk's Corner. Right. Um, they occupy Fairlawn, and immediately they turn it into a supply base, a hospital. Yeah, Fairlawn at that point becomes the, the interstate highway for the British. Everything upstate uh, traveled through Fairlawn Barony. It came up Charlestown by the river, and then the two main roads that went upstate, whether you were going toward uh, Camden, or you're going toward 96, all those points originated at Fairlawn Barony. So it's it's really a crucial transportation hub, but that also makes it a very important military hub. So that underscores the fact that you're talking about building these additional fortifications, because there you, you're controlling the access to the interior. Yeah, it, uh, it becomes the biggest location for the organization of um, British troops that are going to be moving upstate. All the supply lines came through Fairlawn. The communication lines came through Fairlawn. Even though the name may not be familiar to people today, in that era during the Revolutionary War, it probably is the most uh, strategic point for the British. Uh, whether they're still trying to control the Low Country and Berkeley County, or as they're moving upstate, Everything's got to come through Fairlawn. So the control of the fort, the Cooper River, mm -hmm. Fairlawn Barony becomes critically important. All right, Doug, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Doug Bostick, 
the executive director of the South Carolina Battleground Preservation Trust. And we're specifically talking right now about Fairlawn Barony and Colleton Castle in Monk's Corner. So we've got this strategic point that they've already established before the fall of Charleston. How does it grow or become stronger, more important, after the fall of Charleston in May? Yeah, after the the fall of Charlestown, um, probably the next critical point is the events leading up to the Battle of Utah Springs. Uh, Farallon Barony and Fort Farallon itself, again, becomes a key post for assembling the British troops that are heading to Utah Springs for that battle that is in mid-September 1781. After the battle, which essentially is a draw, Farallon becomes then the post for recovery. That's where the British were scrambling to get back to because they knew that there was safety within the confines of Farallon Barony and Fort Farallon. The um, troops that were capable of of, uh, engaging the enemy stationed in the fort. Uh, The wounded were all sent to Colleton Castle, and Colleton Castle at that point becomes a hospital for the British troops. Well, let's talk about Utah Springs, the last real major battle in the South in the Revolution. I think some would effectively argue the last major battle of the American Revolution. Uh, After Yorktown, people seem to think that when Cornwallis surrendered, the revolution was over. There was still fighting going on for another 18 months in South Carolina. Sure. So talk a little bit about the Battle of, of Utah Springs. You said it was a draw, but let's let's put the a little bit of background. Under Nathaniel Green, who's now the commander of the Continental Army, who has made very effective use of the partisans like Marion Pickens and, and others, he's been picking off most outposts. 96 is still there, but he's been picking off outposts one by one. And... He is moving closer to Charleston, and the British are defending Utah Springs, present-day Calhoun County, mostly under the lake. Right. And you read description of the American troops, and they were so ragged. I've seen descriptions that, you know, they, they had put Spanish moss under their, the straps of their knapsacks to keep from rubbing their, their bodies raw. And one of the reasons, I think, and I'll defer to you, that it was considered a draw is the Americans initially took the field, but then they kind of broke ranks to basically resupply themselves from the British camp. Yeah, they did take the field, and uh, the core of the battlefield still, some of it exists, some of it is under the lake, but some of it exists in the town of Utahville. Uh, the Department of Natural Resources owns the site that... Uh, was the location where the British um, set up for the final hurrah. But lots of that property is still undeveloped, and so there are opportunities there for preservation. The The Battle of Utah Springs is another one of those stories amongst many great ones in South Carolina that unfortunately has gotten lost to history. During the American Revolution, the uh, Continental Congress awards five gold medals during the war for unusual achievement. And one of those five medals was awarded to Green for the Battle of Utah Springs, which is a very clear indication of just how critically important uh, the Patriot movement saw that battle. Uh, While it might have been a draw, uh, it did keep the British from advancing. It caused their retreat back to Charlestown. Uh, One of the other interesting facts about the battle, I think, is most every key commander in the Southern Campaign is at this battle. So you've, you've got a, a large um, group of the uh, commanders that we've come to know through stories and histories, all serving under Green that are there. But by the fo- early fall of 1781, Green's men had already been in an exceedingly long campaign. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, I, I think it's an amazing accomplishment whether you want to call it a draw or not, it, it's an amazing accomplishment, really, what they did at Utah Springs. Oh, I absolutely agree. And let's just let our folks know the long campaign that Green's army had been in. It goes back to Green takes over, and he does something immediately that the folks at West Point say you should never do, the army Army doctrines, you never divide your force, particularly in the face of a superior enemy. He divides his force. He stays in Sharon so he can threaten Camden, and he sends Daniel Morgan upstate to Spartan District, 
where you have the battle of the Cowpens, which the Americans win. The only battle in the entire American Revolution where regular British troops fled from a colonial army. The only one, period. Mm -hmm. Then Morgan has his orders. Green's moving north into North Carolina. He rushes to join up with him. And then Cornwallis starts chasing him. And it's the race to the Dan River, the race to the Dan. Incredibly bad weather, winter weather. If the Americans could get across the Dan into Virginia, they could get resupplied, get more troops. They won the race to the Dan and then turn around and Cornwallis starts retreating back south. And so the hunter becomes the hunted. Battle of Guilford Courthouse. Cornwallis basically says, I've had enough adventures in South Carolina. Goes to Wilmington and then proceeds to Yorktown where he surrenders. Green moves back into South Carolina. And as we talked earlier, they then begin to pick off a series of Hanging Rock, Hanging Rock. Georgetown, different places. And he regroups, but still they haven't been able to get all the supplies. And they, it was a ragged army. He talks about that in his diary about his, his men and their suffering. But they still march. They still go down. And among the leaders that uh, you mentioned, the commanders, uh, Colonel William Washington was at Utah Springs. Wade Hampton was it. In fact, Wade Hampton pretty much was a rear guard action that let the Americans withdraw from the field in in good order. Mm-hmm. So, Light Horse Harry, White Light Horse Light Horse Harry Lee, and actually Washington was captured at that battle, was he not? Yes, he was. Um, uh, actually captured on a little spit of land that today is owned by Santee Cooper and. There's a, a marvelous uh, painting accounting for that. And one interesting aside, the flag that Washington carried at the Battle of Utah Springs was later presented to the Washington Light Infantry in Charleston, mm-hmm. and that's the banner under which they still exist today, mm-hmm. uh, Washington's flag from Utah Springs. Okay. They refer to it as the Utah flag. And the Washington Light Infantry is a unit in the South Carolina National Guard, right? Yes, it is. Okay. Now over 200 years old, formed in 1807. Okay. So the Battle of Utah Springs, the British have retreated to Colleton Castle, Fairlawn Fort. What's going to happen next? After the Battle of Utah Springs in September and October 1781, Marion is attacking every British supply train he can find, uh, trying to keep Green resupplied and his own troops resupplied. This culminates in an attack on Fairlawn Barony in November 1781 when Marion sends two colonels, Colonel Hezekiah Mayhem with 180 men and Colonel Isaac Shelby with 200 frontiersmen to attack Fairlawn Plantation. When they arrive at Fairlawn, they uh, look at the fort, uh, assess the situation, feel like the, this British redoubt is too formidable to attack with the troops that they have. And so they in, uh, instead turn their attention to Colleton Castle, which is about a quarter mile away. Um, even though the fort has uh, complete visual access to the castle, they didn't want to come out of the redoubt. The British didn't. So they were not in a position to protect the um, British troops and the wounded from Utah Springs from uh, Mayhem and Shelby's attack, and they do attack Colleton Castle. In short order, the British at Colleton Castle have to surrender. Uh, The Patriots captured 300 stands of arms and 150 prisoners, Um, at least everybody that could move. Prisoners that were not mobile, uh, they left uh, them to the British to deal with. There was a lot of controversy about that within the British Army, Uh, There were threats of uh, severe discipline for the commanders on the scene at the time, um, that the hospital would fall, that so many troops were taken prisoner, that, uh, and and maybe um, more important than anything else, that 300 stands of arms could be captured and fall into the hands of the Patriots. Okay, so Mayhem and Shelby, Shelby has a good North Carolina name. You mentioned Frontiersman. That's an example of the intercolonial cooperation between, you know, there was no firm boundary. We're trying to figure out the North Carolina, South Carolina boundary line now. Sure. They they didn't worry about it in those days. Troops from particularly patriots and partisans from both sides 
across the boundary and helped out. They capture it, they take the arms and ammunition, they take the POWs, but then they leave it to the British. So what did the British do next with, with Farallon Castle? Well, the, the British continued to stay at Farallon into 1782 um, as they're contemplating the withdrawal out of Charlestown itself. Eventually, they do pull the British troops out of Farallon uh, Barony altogether, uh, both Fort Farallon and Colleton Castle. But on the way out of town, they decide to burn down the mansion. The um, account of Colleton's daughter survives. Uh, she was in England at the time, but then did return afterwards. And in her diary, she recorded, they burnt down the mansion, destroyed every building, including a town built on the barony for the residence of several hundred people belonging to the state. On this occasion, in addition to the furniture, paintings, books, plates, etc., a large sum of money, which was in my father's strong box, and even my jewels were lost to me, either destroyed or plundered. And I suspect that was ended up in uh, several knapsacks of British soldiers and made its way back to England, uh, not to return to the original owners. But, and so, as we pointed out earlier, even though the Colletons were uh, devoted loyalists uh, and Colleton's daughter was riding out the American Revolution, staying in England at the time, when the British do finally leave Fairlawn Plantation, they plunder, burn, and destroy the site. Well, did she make a loyalist claim, do you know? Yes, she did. Um, she later marries a, a naval officer. Uh, Graves is his name. Mm -hmm. And um, she does make a claim for what happened at the barony. So, again, that gives you incredible documentary material. For folks out there who haven't studied Revolutionary War history, the Loyalist claims after the war the British established a commission to reward their supporters in the colonies who had lost everything. And if you read the Loyalist claims from South Carolina, you've got people like the Collitons, but then you have a free person of color in Charleston. You've got a, uh, a farmer from the Dutch Fork. It's an incredible cross-section of the population who were who were loyalists, and for this this site, Doug having the loyalist claim and Lady Colleton's daughter's statement, that's an incredible rare resource. It is. Uh, we're fortunate that there's a lot of period documentation for Fairlawn Barony, the fort, uh, Colleton Castle, and and the Colleton family. And we're only just on the front end of pouring through all of this. But, but what's going to happen, Walter, is, is not only an opportunity to continue to preserve this uh, Earthworks readout, but, but also to um, interpret this period of the state's history with incredible accuracy, um, amazing detail, and fascinating stories that have survived. Um, it, it's going to end up being a wonderful project. It's a revolutionary site, but the fact that it is primarily a loyalist site, that's something that is not really interpreted in South Carolina. And as you pointed out earlier, if you want to talk about America's first real civil war, what happened in South Carolina, and actually both American officers, Green used the term civil war to describe the, the fighting in the Carolina and South Carolina, particularly the back country very brutal. Uh, so did Cornwallis. Both commanders used that term, and it frustrated the British because they never knew who was on their side. You know, one, one of my um, uh, favorite stories, um, and it doesn't have anything to do with Fort Fairlawn, but it's a clear indication of just how hard the feelings were and how brutal an experience everybody went through that was involved in the Southern Campaign. Um, there's a story about a British officer named Matt Archie Campbell. Uh, now, apparently, in British troops, to be named Archibald Campbell is like being named John Smith. There's a lot of them. Uh, but there's a, a gravestone for a gentleman in Mount Pleasant. Uh, he was a patriot in Christchurch Parish. And after Matt Archie Campbell was captured, he was one of these infamous officers um, in the British cavalry that had really taken unbelievable liberties with the population and burning non-military sites and, and uh, injuring civilians and so forth. 
and he was finally captured, and they put him under guard. Um, and so one of the gentlemen that was posted as his guard, when the officers later came back, Matt Archie was dead. And he said that he tried to escape, and his only choice was to shoot him. And if you go to Christ Church in Mount Pleasant today at the headstone of this gentleman, this patriot, it doesn't say wonderful father, great patriot, you know, none of the uh, things you might expect to see on a headstone. It simply says the man who killed Matt Archie Campbell. Uh, so that was his claim to life. And, uh, but it, it was a brutal time, and certainly Berkeley County saw more than its share of it uh, because Marion and, and his militia had a presence in Berkeley County all throughout the campaign, the war, the Southern campaign. Uh, and the British had such a strong presence at Fairlawn. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Campbell, and everybody focuses in on Tarleton. But the three major subordinates to Cornwallis were Kruger, who operated in around 96, Tarleton, and then there was Weems, who operated over mm-hmm. in, in the PD. And when he left Georgetown, he burned Georgetown and, as he said, 50 plantations between there and Charleston on his way right. back. So the British early on pretty much gave up the idea of trying to win the hearts and minds. Um, They never made any attempt, and it blew up in their faces. You don't go running around the upcountry, or the backcountry as they then called it, making sacrilegious comments and particularly burning down Presbyterian meeting houses because those Scots-Irish back there are not the kind of folks you want (laughs) <laughs> to be ticked, <laughs> be yeah. angry, be angry with you, <laughs> and the the uh, actions of the British Army is so ironic, given the fact that the British had such high hopes for the Southern Campaign, because they knew they had a loyalist population here, they believed coming in that they would win the hearts and minds of South Carolina. And uh, by their actions, they ended up being the very ones that determined that, of course, would not occur. It's interesting to read the memoirs of the British, and I've done it. I've read I've read Cornwallis's, I've read Tarleton's, I've read Clinton's, uh, Sir Henry Clinton, who actually was the overall American commander. People forget about that. Mm-hmm. One of the things that first ticked everybody off was that after Charlestown surrendered in May, the American soldiers were all given parole which in the 18th century was you sign a piece of paper, you go back home, you sit out the war. And every other post and um, American post in the state had surrendered. They all thought they're getting parole. Clinton leaves in early June, and he revokes the parole. And so a lot of guys are saying, well, not only this show you don't, you don't keep your word, but they were also ordered they were going to have to sign an oath of allegiance to the king and be willing to take up arms against their neighbors. So within literally a month after the successful capture of what the London newspapers called the most opulent colony in the British Empire, the British begin to take actions to unravel their success. Right, right. We've got a few minutes. I'd like to move from Fairlong because I think we've I could talk about the revolution for three programs. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk some more about your organization. I think it's doing an incredible job, and I think folks would like to know a little bit more about it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, the Battleground Trust was founded in 1991. Uh, it grew out of the Civil War Roundtable, an organization in Charleston. Uh, from the beginning, uh, the mission of the group was to try to protect and preserve military historic sites from any war in the state, Um, but having originated in Charleston and uh, in a location that has such a wealth of Civil War sites throughout most of our history, we've been pretty Civil War centric, have saved some important places, Fort Palmetto on Coles Island on the Stono River, Uh, recently Uh, an easement on 26 acres, which include another Fort Palmetto, but this one overlooking the Copahe Sound um, in Christ Church Parish. Now, these are earthworks as well. These are all earthworks. Well, the Fort Palmetto on the Copahe Sound is an earthwork site. Fort Palmetto on Coles Island is actually a tabby fortification that was first built for the War of 1812. Oh, okay. And then was reoccupied um, by Confederate troops during the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Um, so that particular one is, is a tabby fort. It does have a sister 
fortification, also made of tabby, though mostly destroyed by tidal erosion, across the Stono River on the Kiowa side. Um, but nonetheless, we've worked with some very important Civil War sites all throughout the coast. We hold the easement for Battery White in Georgetown. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all the way on the southern end, we own a property called Battery Brayton, which is a federal earthworks fortification uh, almost in downtown Beaufort. Oh, okay. But we've recently uh, dedicated ourselves, both because it's important to do so and there were some opportunities, we've dedicated ourselves into a, a conspicuous expansion into the Revolutionary War. There are not as many surviving sites um, to be saved, mm-hmm. uh, and so that's part of the reason maybe we weren't into it early on. But we have, in the last two years, purchased two properties both of which are uh, part of the battlefield of the Battle of Stono Ferry, okay. which is maybe the, the most important uh, battle in South Carolina in 1779. The first site we bought is um, the footprint of one of the three British redoubts and sits right on the Stono River. And the other site we bought is um, a little maybe quarter mile away, but still in the footprint of the battle, and it's where the... Hessians that were attached to the British Army fought the North Carolina militia. Mm -hmm. So we're tickled to now have part of the battlefield for the Battle of Stono Ferry. We're actually negotiating right now on an earthworks site in Barnwell County. The earthworks were originally built by Loyalist militia at the uh, beginning of the Revolutionary War, but the same earthworks were later used by Confederate troops in trying to put an anchor on Sherman's army and slow him down when they were crossing the Saucahatchee River. Um, so that's a very interesting site, and and uh, we're hopeful something will work out there. Well, you mentioned the Yamasee War, so you're going back to very early 18th century. Yes. Is that Beaufort County? No, um, that particular site is in uh, Collison County. There is a site, it's an historic site, that was the site of the St. James Goose Creek Chapel of Ease. Mm-hmm. And even though the earthwork has been destroyed, um, the footprint of the site included an earthworks for Colonel Chicken's plantation where a Yemisee battle did occur uh, 300 years ago this year. Well, Colonel George Chicken, folks, he's a real... He's a real person. (laughs) He's a real person. (laughs) Well, and in fact, uh, one of the things that has survived is a book about his daughter, Little Mistress Chicken. Yes. And uh, if, if for any of the listeners, if you're not familiar with it, it's well worth scrounging and searching to find it. It, it just has marvelous tales of, of uh, life in that era. I, I believe that the Colonial Dames in South Carolina republished that, I think, back in the 70s. But okay. they, they did. And I would be willing to bet that a lot of the local history sections in county libraries around the state are going to have a copy of Little Mistress Chicken. I would Uh, think so. Colonel Chicken, of course, was also involved in the South Carolina invasions of St. Augustine, campaigns against St. Augustine. Right. The Chicken family. And so, you know, I I had been to St. Augustine, and they do a lot of living history, and they've got the oldest this, that, and the whatever. And um, I made them the statement at a group meeting one time that, you know, it can't be the oldest schoolhouse in America simply because twice South Carolina burned everything except for the castle Castillo de San Marcos. Mm-hmm. And um, the woman who was the head of the colonial dames from the state of Florida was not amused. <laughs> but as the one from South Carolina said, the truth hurts. Well, <laughs> so. well St. Augustine certainly was the perennial thorn in the side of South Carolina during our early mm-hmm. history uh, and, and a place that... Uh, uh, escaped slaves would run to, and we received attacks from troops in that area. And that's another one of these compelling stories that I think has been lost in time is the interaction between St. Augustine and South Carolina. Colonial South Carolina history, Doug, is very rich, and I'm really delighted that the South Carolina Battleground Preservation Trust has decided to focus in on the revolution, and you're finding these sites, and even to come up with an Indian war from the Yamasee War, which almost did end South Carolina, right, is a wonderful testimony for trying to save our 
South Carolina heritage, and your your group is to be congratulated for that. Thank you. I it's it truly is a privilege for all of us involved in the Battleground Trust to do this work, and and we see it as an opportunity to uh, leave a legacy for generations to come. It, one of our um, young people on staff, uh, as he was toying around with different bylines and things to use on our Facebook page, he came up with uh, preserving the past and forming the future. Uh, and I think that's exactly right. That's what we hope these sites will do. Uh, there's a, a great quote in the Medal of Honor Museum at Patriots Point in Charleston uh, as you exit the museum that says, uh, a nation that does not honor its heroes will not long endure. And that's our motivation for preserving these sites. Well, Doug Bostick, the executive director of the South Carolina Battleground Preservation Trust, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you, Walter. It's been a pleasure. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I certainly did. I always enjoy talking about the American Revolution at any opportunity. But what the South Carolina Battleground Preservation Trust is undertaking now at Fairlawn Barony is a unique site, an incredible site, and a part of our Revolutionary War history. It's a story that all South Carolinians should know about. And I personally can't wait until this wonderful site is open to the public. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.